Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Here ends our reading. It was a dark and stormy night. Call me Ishmael. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Rosebud. Way out west, there was this fellow I want to tell you about. Goes by the name of Jeff Lebowski. Please, sir, I want some more. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. In the beginning was the word. Famous first lines of stories from print and film that are memorable to many people. So imagine my own surprise when I attended the installation of the new president of the Disciples of Christ Historical Society and our general minister and president, Reverend Terry Horde Owens, used Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, as one of the scriptures for her sermon. And my thought was, wait, that's how the gospel according to Luke begins? We remember the story about the foretelling of the birth of John the baptizer to Elizabeth and the birth of Jesus foretold to Mary by the angel Gabriel and Mary's song of praise that we do forget that the author of Luke begins with an introduction that is forgettable and often overlooked. But his introduction is a reminder that as Christians, our faith is not simply a collection of ideas and propositions, but that we are inheritors of stories passed on to us. In the opening verses of Luke's gospel, the author tells Theophilus, whoever, if ever, that person might be, that he has decided to write an orderly report through which the truth may be known. So how does the writer of Luke, who is not an eyewitness, but actually probably second or third generation recipient, write about what has happened among us from what has been passed on to us. Well, he tells the story. Once upon a time, in a faraway land called Judea, when Herod was king, there lived a man named Zechariah. And the author says to Theophilus, let me tell you my story, our story, and the lens through which we can make sense of the chaos of this world. As Fred Craddock writes, there are two other realities that are impressed upon this writer. First, the event of Jesus is receding farther and farther into the past. 
His life and work are becoming matters of history. And second, the church is now a movement, an institution in the world, and the author of Luke assumes that much more time will pass before Christ returns. Enough time has passed and enough time lies before the Christian community to call for a better sense of history. And Luke acknowledges that he is less the source of this testimony, but more so a link in a tradition of faith that has been handed on to us from the value of testimony from the original apostolic sources, those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And Luke also acknowledges the careful historical research he is also adding. We also tell our particular story. We do it through songs, through liturgy, through proclaimed word, through our prayers. Our responsibility is as simple as it is daunting. We are to help others live into our Christian stories so that they might become part of that story, so that they might also become a living, breathing sacrament of God's grace. Many still want to find their place in a story that matters. As James Luck writes in Feasting on the Word, Luke's story is one where the poor, women, lepers, Samaritans, and others from the island of misfit toys come to know that they too belong to the kingdom of God. There is not only room, but a need for such a gospel of mercy in our world. And when we share our stories with others, we become part of their stories and they become part of ours. Once Theophilus heard Luke's story, he became a part of that same story. A shared history is a powerful bond and an awareness of history can foster a sense of pride and a feeling of connectedness. The telling of this history, whether it is in oral or written form, is one of the most important ways that newer members of a family are welcomed into the group. And this is the sense of history is equally important to a congregation. Congregational functions are one of the oldest and most enduring forms of human activity. Throughout both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, the stories of groups of people brought together to worship have been told. And we know about them because they have been written down and passed along the generations. A sense of who we are is partly dependent on who we were. And the history of a congregation can reveal stories of its struggle to survive, its prosperity, stories replete with both setbacks and successes. History is a creative act, always in the process of transformation itself, as it also transforms those who engage in the experience of history. And we are encouraged to promote history as both an academic discipline and a lived experience. Both approaches contributing to a very vital spiritual life. 
And we should take a comprehensive approach to congregational history, to engage the entire congregation, those who have been members for quite some time and those who are newcomers, those who are young and those who are older in years, those who are interested in education, in music, in social action, in spiritual practices and more. Everyone in a congregation can get involved in doing history. History is important because it serves as a memory for us. It keeps the past alive. That's why that table is so important to us each Sunday, recalling those stories and that history. It connects the past to the present and helps us for the future to create a sense of identity and connection to help us understand who we are today. And grounded in the importance of history generally, let us focus on questions to ask. Why does congregational history matter? Why does history matter to faith development? That is, why does it matter that we know who and what came before us within and outside our particular faith tradition? Why does it matter that we know what has influenced the shape and identity of our tradition and how that has been passed on to us? Well, perhaps the first and most important response to all of those questions is that history serves as a spiritual practice. If spirituality can be understood as connections within ourselves, with other living beings, and with the divine, then history, in its capacity to connect past, present, and future, certainly does then become an important spiritual practice. Congregational history is created by calling on our memories of the events and the players of the past whose life and deeds are kept alive through the histories we create. And those events and players create a picture of a congregation's culture that helps explain what this congregation is like today and what it will become or might become in the future. Congregational history confirms that our faith community has mattered in this place and for this amount of time. And congregational history thus shapes our identity. It suggests how a congregation perceives itself, what sort of face it puts out to the world and what it hopes to become in the future. Now, in general, we tend to think of the people associated with history as those who either create the history or those who read the history on the assumption that most historical objects exist as printed materials. But if history is an important spiritual practice, then congregational history should be something that reaches everyone in the congregation. And a wide variety of activities and people are included in the doing of this history. Not only those who write or read the history, 
But those who collect the documents or tape interviews for an oral history project or design a history website or arrange the visual displays of historical objects or listen to sermons on the history or learn the information that the historians have written. In all those ways, a congregation's history touches all the members and friends beyond the congregation. And just as each of us can regard ourselves as theologians or as ministers, each of us can also be historians in the widest sense of the term. History is not only for the academics among us, history is for everyone. And everyone in a congregation is a candidate for doing history. Congregational history is so important that within the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, the online Journal of Discipliana is devoting its 2024 issues to the histories of Disciples and Stone Campbell congregations. And the Historical Society believes that denominational historical archives are not just repositories of religious texts and ideas, but at their very best, they are sources for the church's work for justice and wholeness in the world. And the Historical Society is even going to be offering free online workshops on researching and writing church histories in the coming year. So, First Christian Church of Perry, Oklahoma, you are 130 years in your existence. What about your history confirms that your faith community has mattered in this place for this amount of time? Well, certainly your origin story in this community is dramatic. Shortly after President Grover Cleveland issued a proclamation on August 19, 1893, declaring that the Cherokee Strip would be opened for settlement at noon, on September 16, 1893, a representative of the Church Extension Board of the Christian Church prepared for the event because the Secretary of the Interior had announced that each religious body could have a representative claim one lot in each town. And so Reverend E.F. Bogus who was a pastor at a church in Guthrie and president of the Territorial Mission Board, began to train a horse that had been provided for him by the church extension fund in order to make the run into the strip to acquire sites in advance of a congregation. And Perry was his first stop. Although Maybe he kind of missed the mark and, and originally staked the, the claim outside of the territorial boundary um, and had to be relocated a year later when they decided to erect a structure. But it's still, Perry was significant as being the first for the Christian church disciples in this endeavor uh, to establish more churches in the territory. Now, there's no record of a service held on that Sunday after the run, September 17, 1893, but on the following Sunday, Bogus was ready with a tent and equipment. A Sunday school was begun by Dick T. Morgan as superintendent. He was also the land agent at the office in town. 
And this tent served as a place of worship until cold weather set in, and then the church services got moved to Smith's Hall and in Mr. Morgan's office on West D Street. Now, originally, the church organization itself was really incorporated when elders and the diaconate and the structure of the church was established on October 22, 1893. Incorporated with William Judd and Noah Davenport as elders and W.H. Cobb as deacon with 36 charter members, most of them having made the run or having come in just after the run, and they invited Reverend Powers to serve as pastor for $25 a month. I know. Now, in May 1894, it was decided that a building should be built, and a committee was appointed to purchase a lot in actual Perry proper this time within the town limits. And a church was going to be erected at a cost of not exceeding $1,500. And the property became located at the corner of D and 9th Streets. Now, $1,500, that's a big sum of money. And so they had to borrow $750 from the church extension board to help complete the work. But notable, the Ladies Aid Society made arrangements to do fundraisers and purchase and equip the Lord's Table. The newly organized Christian Endeavor Society set about raising the necessary funds for the purchase of an organ, and everyone worked to build this church building. Now, in 1896, there was a change in the pastors. Now, Reverend Hilton of Kentucky University came. And during his pastorate, starting in 1896, lights were purchased for the building. And the debt was gradually whittled down. And he stayed for two years. And then a Reverend Barney, an outstanding evangelist, came in. And his ministry was noted with considerable growth. And the church even began a missionary program starting a church at Billings, right? So even then, the outreach is funding new church starts in the area. Now, in 18, at that point in the 1890, late 1890s, Mr. Barney's salary was set at $650 a year. So doing well, doing well. Every religious census that is coming out in the late 19th, early 20th century within Perry City proper cites the Christian church as the prominent religious presence. There are other churches in town, but the Christian church is usually always the largest. There's a series of pastorates that changes, maybe short, but each minister served and made a noteworthy contribution. Now, no major changes, though, in the church building until about 1925, when Reverend G. Frank Sanders was the pastor. A lot was purchased next to the church. The parsonage was built. A basement was added to that church building. And then in 1932, a pastor's study and a choir room were added, built off of the north and the south wings of the church. In 1936, major repairs made, including a new ceiling, a new baptistry, re-roofing, and the purchase of new chairs for the sanctuary. But because of all of this growth, Around 1941, 
it was becoming very noted that the church was going to have to start making plans probably for a new building in a new location. And so a building fund was started and fundraisers began throughout the community leading up to the building of the next Christian church. Now one of the most famous members coming out of this congregation was Henry S. Johnston, a lawyer and a politician who served as a delegate to the Oklahoma Constitutional Convention, the first president pro tem of the Oklahoma Senate, and the seventh governor of Oklahoma. He would become, though, the second governor in Oklahoma history to be impeached and removed from office. <laughs> There's a story, always a story with it. As he was inaugurated on January 10, 1927, he had hopes of a successful administration, but problems would haunt his governorship from the beginning. Before the state legislature adjourned in May 1927, complaints had been raised about Johnson's private secretary, Mrs. O.O. Hammonds. Legislative leaders were concerned that she held too much power over the governor, even believing that she went so far as to make some of those executive decisions and appointments in her own right. Now, he survived the impeachment challenge at that time, but everything changed at the end of 1928 when the Democratic Party selected Al Smith as their presidential nominee to challenge the Republican nominee, Herbert Hoover. Al Smith, a Catholic. And Johnson, loyal to the Democratic ally, campaigned across the state on Smith's behalf. And Smith, of course, not only a Catholic, but supported the end of prohibition and spoke out against religious bigots. So when the state legislature met in its regular session in 1929, both Democrats and Republicans, with the support of a very strong Ku Klux Klan presence in the political parties in Oklahoma at that time, crafted a second wave of impeachment charges and did a trial, and one stuck general incompetence. And so following his impeachment, Johnston returned to Perry to practice law. Four years later, he would win a term in the state Senate, and then after leaving the Senate, he would once again come back to Perry to practice law where he died at the age of 97 in 1965 and of course is buried in Perry. I learned about Henry Johnston doing research on the Oto Peyote Church called the Firstborn Church. And when I was digging through the archives, I discovered that Johnston had been a, a lawyer on behalf of the Oto people for a lot of their land claims. And he was also the lawyer that helped them draft their articles of incorporation in 1914 to practice their religious freedom using peyote. With, and, and so they became a legal church with the state of Oklahoma. And so in looking through his archives around that, I found documents naming Henry Johnston as an active member of the First Christian Church of Perry. In 1925, before he became governor in 1927, he was the financial secretary, sending out letters 
Don't forget to sign your pledge cards and turn them in for our stewardship campaign. And so in the 1940s, when it was realized that a new building would be needed and a building fund began for the construction, it was actually former Oklahoma Governor Henry Johnston that sold the church some of his property at 7th and Holly Streets for the new church building that would be built down the street from his residence at 721 Holly Street. And that building was dedicated on July 22nd, 1951. And here it stands with some additions along the way, but here it stands as an important place in the life of Perry, Oklahoma, and an important place in the life of you, its members. The historical stories are now up to you to continue to tell and to create. Amen. <laughs>